But whenever we do baptisms, we always want to make sure we are all here publicly aware of what we're doing here, what we're not doing, and what baptism means. And so when we ask that question, what is baptism? I think one, of the, one, one helpful way we can think about uh, baptism is by asking the question, um, what are the three voices in baptism saying? Now, what do I mean by that? What are the three voices in baptism saying? In baptism, we can think of baptism as there are three different voices communicating something. First of all, there is what God is saying in baptism. Second of all, there is what we are saying in baptism as those who undertake baptism, the recipient that is. And then thirdly, there is what the church is communicating in baptism. So again, what God is saying, what the recipient is saying, and what the church is saying. So let's look at each of those things as we enter into our time this morning or this afternoon. Um, the first is, what does God say in baptism? Let me read Romans 6 for us here. Romans 6 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So one of the things that we see here in this passage is that baptism, as Paul is assuming, depicts the believer's burial and resurrection with Christ. And so as we uh, practice immersion and as the person is brought under the water, that, of course, pictures their burial with Christ. And as they're raised out of the water, that pictures their resurrection with Christ. And so you might think of it this way. As we gather on Sunday mornings and we preach the word and through the word we preach the gospel, so as we then practice the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, not only is the gospel preached in preaching, but then the gospel is made visible in the ordinances. So the Lord's Supper depicts for us Christ's body and blood given for us in death. And so his body for us, likewise, baptism is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection for us, as we are then sort of caught up in the death and resurrection of Christ as pictured in baptism. And that, of course, is something we receive by faith. And so baptism itself, there's nothing in the waters themselves that save us, but rather baptism is a picture. It depicts and it is therefore associated with our salvation. And so I like to refer to both baptism and the Lord's Supper as pictured promises. They are pictures, but they're more than pictures. They're also backed with promises. And so one of the ways you might think about baptism in the Lord's Supper is something like a wedding ring. Um, if I was to just go to a pawn shop and buy a ring um, and put it on my ring finger, say I wasn't actually married, and I just started telling everyone I was married, it wouldn't mean anything, right? No one, no one, it may be a picture. We might associate the picture of a ring with a wedding ring, we might associate, well, it's on his right, uh, ring finger, so he must be married. But in actuality, I wouldn't be married because no one actually pledged um, that, that marriage covenant to me. And so the ring doesn't mean anything. But on the other hand, if I'm actually married and my wife gives me a ring, this actually means something. And not only does it in our culture uh, represent to the watching world that I am married, but in actuality, it really does represent that to me because my spouse gave it to me for that reason. And so the ring doesn't make me married. It's not that all of a sudden I'm not married anymore just because I took my ring off and putting it on doesn't make me married. 
But what it does is it does signify that. It signifies the promise, and it's very meaningful in that way. And we might think of baptism as something similar to that. It's a picture. It's a significant picture. It's a picture backed with the promises of God. He gives us baptism. And so what baptism communicates is not some figment of imagination we've made up, but it comes backed with the very promises of God for those who, through baptism, trust in Christ. And so... On very simple terms, people will sometimes refer to baptism as an outward sign of an inward reality. It's not the inward reality. Baptism doesn't make us united to Christ. It doesn't save us in itself, but it's a picture of the salvation we have by faith. We are buried with Christ through faith, and we are raised with him through faith. And so the first voice we see in baptism is God's voice. God is speaking to us in baptism. He is communicating to us in baptism. When he gives us baptism, he is saying that all those who by faith trust in Christ, this is what is true of them. Just as Jesus died for sin and died to the power of sin and was buried so that sin itself died in his death. And as Christ was raised from the dead to a new newness of life, so all those who place their faith in Christ are caught up in the very uh, destiny of Christ. That what is true of Christ is true of us. That we too have been united to Jesus in his death so that as he died to my sin, so my sin is dead. And as he is risen to life, so I am now new now and in the future will ultimately be new even when he raises us physically from death. And so that is God's voice. God, what he is saying in baptism is he is promising us the pictures in baptism. They are yours for those who trust in Jesus. So that's what God is saying. Secondly, what are we saying in baptism? What are, is the person who undertakes baptism, what are they saying? Well, let me read for us Acts 8, which says this, and as they were going along the, the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he uh, commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so here we have a, just a short couple verses accounting in, in Acts chapter 8 when Philip, uh, who is a believer and he is a, he's an evangelist, he meets this one uh, eunuch and shares the gospel with him through Isaiah 53. And immediately upon believing in Jesus through the scripture, the eunuch, the eunuch uh, asks, well, what should keep me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. We see here, among other things, that faith is quickly followed in the Bible by baptism. Those who trust in Jesus are those who get baptized. In the Bible, there's no category, in other words, of an unbaptized believer. We experience that a little bit today where sometimes you'll have folks who place their faith in Christ and there's this large gap between when they trust in Jesus and when they get baptized. But biblically speaking, there wasn't that gap. The the assumption was if you are a believer you're going to go ahead and get baptized and identify yourself as a believer through baptism. Believers get baptized. And so sometimes we like to refer to baptism as the first act of obedience in the Christian life. That when you trust in Jesus for your salvation, what's the first act of obedience? The whole life of the Christian should be a continual obedience to Jesus. But what is the first act of obedience? Well, it is, of course, to get baptized, to identify with Christ in baptism. And so it's supposed to be, biblically speaking, bound up with that moment we trust in Christ, closely associated when when we first come to Christ in faith. 
And so if what God is saying in baptism is that these promises are for you if you believe, our voice in baptism, when we receive baptism, it is our way of sort of going public with our faith, we might say. It is us declaring that we have, in fact, decided to follow Jesus. And so our voice, as those who undertake and receive baptism, is by saying publicly, I believe in Jesus. I believe the promises depicted here in baptism. And so that's God's voice, and that is the recipient's voice in baptism. The last voice we want to look, we want to look at is the church's voice. The church actually says something in baptism, believe it or not. And so in Acts 2, um, after Peter delivers this evangelistic message at Pentecost, and people are cut to the heart, it says, and they ask Peter what they should do in response to this message of a crucified Messiah, Peter says, or, or the, the passage goes on, and it says that those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so added to what? Well, added to the church, added to the rank of those who are believers, added to the community of believers. So you'll notice here, though, that when they received the word, when they believed, in other words, the message of the gospel, that Jesus has died for our sins, they were then baptized and added to the church. There's, there's, a, there's three steps here that go in sequence and are tightly bound together, believing, baptism, and joining the church. And so baptism is closely associated, it is to be closely associated, with entrance into the church. So you might think of it this way. We have two ordinances that, that we've been given as a church. We've been given baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if, if the Lord's Supper is this table fellowship we have for those who are a part of the church, those who have entered into the, the house of the church, you might say, um, baptism is the front door. Baptism is supposed to be the entry right where we, where we enter into the church, where we enter into fellowship in the church, we become members in the church, and baptism is the, is the ordinance at the beginning of the Christian life that marks off our entrance into the church. The Lord's Supper, then, after we've come into the church, the Lord's Supper is the weekly meal we have regularly with the saints. It's the meal that we commonly share. It's, it's not the entry right to the Christian life, but it's the regular right, the weekly right that we share as, as a family. And so the ordinance, it's the ordinance of the church, um, baptism is something that Christ gives the church to act. This isn't something, in other words, that we do as individuals or families or retreat centers or Christian camps. But baptism is something that specifically God has given the church to exercise. And it's something that the whole church does. So when Dan and I get up there with Jessica, um, you'll notice um, we don't in our in our formula, assuming that Dan says it this way. I'm telling you to say it this way. So this is, this, is, this is how we have it written down, at least. So now the pressure's on, Dan. But what we say is that we say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we don't say, I baptize you. Not that we're saying there's something wrong with that. Some, I'm sure some places and some churches do that. But there's something special about the fact that, that I think when we can say, we baptize you, not just Dan and I, but the church, as, as, as those of us here are part of Crossway, representing Crossway, we are saying to Jessica that we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, Dan and I representing that in the actions. And so this really goes back to Jesus' teaching where he says that he gives the church the keys of the kingdom. 
Um, what does that mean, the keys of the kingdom? We had, we had talk about keys in today's passage this morning. Well, the keys of the kingdom are the, the entryway into the kingdom, the door into the kingdom, so to say. Now, obviously, we know the gospel is the only thing that saves us, but Christ has given the church as an institution on earth that sort of delegated authority to mark out who it sees as Christ's own, who it sees as actually being the believers, who are actual citizens of that kingdom. And baptism is one of what is, is one of the primary ways we as a church do that. When we, when we find someone who actually professes faith in Christ and the church exercising the keys of the kingdom says, yes, we indeed do see you as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Let us mark you with our Lord's sign of baptism that says as such, you are his. And so when we baptize Jessica or anyone else, what we are in effect doing, one of the things we're doing is this is actually an act of assurance then. Ultimately, our assurance comes from Christ and the cross, um, but there are other assurances that God gives us. And one of the things that we can, that, that can bolster our faith and our assurance is that there is a community of people that holds to scripture and holds to the gospel that agrees with our profession. That when I say I believe in Jesus, I'm not just a lone ranger saying I believe in Jesus, but there are other people around me who can look into my life and say, yes, we also agree with you that you're a believer, that your profession of faith is credible. And so we can look at baptism as something that gives us a sense of assurance. And baptism also then is a public marking, marking us out as a follower of Jesus. That our faith is not just a privatized individual thing, but the church has said, yes, this person Publicly, we recognize you as a citizen in Christ's kingdom. And so as a church, even as we are not those getting baptized today, everyone here that's not Jessica, um, as a church, when we witness baptism, we also can look on and see what God is communicating in baptism as well and be encouraged again as we look back to our own baptisms, as we see the promises in baptism that God has made to us, we can be encouraged and our faith can be nourished. So I just leave you with those, uh, that, those summaries as we think about what is baptism and what we're doing here today, what God is communicating in baptism, the promises he makes, what we communicate in baptism, our going public, our expressing our faith in Christ, and what the church is saying in baptism. We, in fact, recognize you and mark you as one of Christ's own.